Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. On today's episode, I'm talking with my friend Steve Wilcox, who is the Chancellor of the Catholic Diocese of Oakland. I'm titling this episode, The Conscientious Giver, as Steve and his wife, Peg, made a deliberate giving part of their lives from earlier in their marriage. Steve enjoyed a 30-year career with Accenture, which afforded him virtually no time to volunteer. Yet he managed to stay involved with organizations supported by the Catholic Church and those dedicated to youth like the YMCA. Today, Steve also runs a family foundation with his three boys as directors, passing his legacy of giving. So Steve, welcome to Third Act. Thank you, Liz. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you. So I, I was laughing because writing the intro feels a little bit weird because I thought it was a bit soft when I thought about you since you're also, and I mean this in the most complimentary way, kind of the compassionate hard ass. So, <laughs> Well, well I, I take it as a compliment. Good, good. Well, I mean, you're from the East Coast, so you're from New York and met you probably not long. Maybe I met you in New York, but uh, anyway, it kind of goes with the territory. So I want to spend a few minutes uh, on your first act, which was at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, which I have to say I've never heard of. Um, why, why there and what did you want to get out of that? What did you think you were going to do? Uh, well, first of all, why there? Um, uh, it It is, uh, not many people have heard of it, but it's run by the Holy Cross Fathers, which is the same order that runs Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame. So it's it's just one of their smaller schools. And, um, you know, my parents didn't go to college. And in fact, I didn't really know anyone who went to college. And um, it was a very safe choice. Uh, pretty close to home, uh, but far enough away I could, you know, be away. And uh, at the time, I thought I could go there and kind of continue to explore what I wanted to do. But my general direction was a career in, I'm going to say, government, public service, something mm -hmm. like that. I majored in political science and economics. Mm -hmm. So that's generally what I was thinking of doing. Oh, maybe you could go back to it right about now. We could probably <laughs> use some folks. Uh, but then you went on to Carnegie Mellon for your master's. Did you go directly after undergraduate school? Uh, no, I ended up with a, uh, a year off, which in retrospect was uh, perfect. Uh, I got very ill my senior year in college. Oh. Uh, I got mononucleosis on a oh, scale. Right. One to ten, I got it a nine, and so I ended up with six weeks. I couldn't. I literally almost couldn't get out of bed. Uh, so uh, I didn't graduate, and uh, ended up sort of a, with a forced year off, which turned out fine. And during that time, I spent my time exploring grad schools. Made a decision I would go to the best school I got into, and it was Carnegie Mellon. And what did you study there? My master's was in public policy analysis. It was quantitative program uh, based on really geared towards the federal government, both in terms of how to create policy, but also how to analyze policy. So I did things, I'll give you an example. Uh, we did a research paper where we created, this seems like ancient history, we created the engineering spec for what would a facility need to look like if you were going to do DNA research? Oh. Because at the time, there were concerns that if DNA research escaped into the water, the air, 
what it would it do to the environment. So we did, you know, pretty hardcore engineering and analytics that would end up as policy. That's really cool. But you thought you were going to go into the CIA. Did you want to be a spy? Uh, well, well <laughs> I can't see the spy, um, but well, uh, maybe. So actually, that's what ended it was the fact that I blurted that out in an interview. Um, I did several rounds of interviews with the CIA, and I thought I was going to be an analyst, a policy analyst. Uh-huh. Jack Ryan esque. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought it was. I thought it was exciting, and I was going to see. And you know, I, it was a perfect match for my skills. And then in my last interview with them, so I didn't make it to the next interview, they asked me if I'd ever considered data collection as a career. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, there's a certain percentage of our employees that we put in the diplomatic corps and we then put them in embassies, change their names, of course. I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> exactly what they say. We change their names, of course. And then those people really, they get to know people in the foreign countries. They collect data. Blah, blah, blah. Data. And, and I said, oh, you want me to be a spy? And they didn't invite me back. For oh, my goodness. Time. Wow. Okay. Note to listeners, words <laughs> not to use. You know, still re- they recruit people who are older. I did at one point, I saw an ad in The Economist last year and it was, it was again, as thinking about my own third act, trying to figure out what to do. And I said to John, my husband, I'm like, why don't we go be spies? Like, you know, they, we're smart. We're a couple. Do you think they'd take us? And he just looked at me like I had five heads. Right. So anyway, exactly. um, Okay, so after so you're doing well in grad school, but you have your slip during your CIA interview. What what do you end up doing? You know, I I did interview with uh, among other things Arthur Anderson, who of course have this literally, if you can think about it back then, a a practice that it's not underway, but it's in its early stages at Arthur Anderson. You know, it, it's. Uh, it's it's called ad services at the time, and uh, they're working with computers. And there was a group of us, myself included, that we could turn a computer on. We could program it. I mean, we used it all the time in our analysis. I mean, I I, I knew a language or two, and they came to campus to interview, and I interviewed. Uh, in fact, with a guy named Steve Zimmerman. I don't know. Oh, if you yeah, I remember Steve. Steve. Sure. And Steve was a a Carnegie Tech grad, so okay. he went back even further than Carnegie Mellon, and got connected to New York and was hired. It was perfect. Peggy and I were pretty serious by then, getting ready to get married. She was living in New Jersey. New York was a great location. And Arthur Anderson had a government practice, so I was uh, kind of thinking, geez, I'll just you know, put together tech skills with government practice and the location. So, so you I got did. hired. I think you told me earlier that you thought if you worked for them, you'd be useful to them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I thought I would be somewhat used. And you, at the time, you could put the entire New York, think of it as consulting practice in a ballroom. I mean, we could, we right. were that small. There were 125 of us. I'm I, sure it, this was true for you when you started. As oh, well. absolutely. In it's Chicago. You know, it's funny when I contrast that to my own children and probably to yours, because we have kids about the same age who are working. And when I talk to them about 
well, more they talk to me about their jobs. It's all about how great they are for that company, how that company should be happy that they have them, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think same with you. I'm like, well, maybe I could be useful to these guys and they'd pay me. You know? yeah. <laughs> so it's such a different attitude. Well, I remember that I was very happy to have a job. and But there was one guy I was with, and I can't remember his name, but when he found out that someone was paid more to start with roughly the same credentials, he quit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're doing what? I, well, you know, that they paid him $2,000 more to start than we, than we got. Right. And I was like, boy, you're crazy. <laughs> All right. Keep your job. Right. So a little bit, things have changed. Yeah. So you had a great career uh, starting in New York. I met you when you moved out to California. Maybe just give us some highlights of, you know, sort of what you did and what your, maybe your own personal career highlights were. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, the early career probably worked out a little bit like I was originally thinking. My first big assignment was at the New York City Transit Authority. So uh, not a government agency, but pretty close. And I worked, uh, I'm, I'm sure the partner was... Uh, was actually Rick Haverly, but the, the guy I worked for was Steve Smith. And we built what was the first business application on a mini computer, maybe in the United States, maybe in the world. And we, you know, we dabbled in things like the programmer's workbench and stuff like that. So it was really technical skills, government application. So it was a lot of fun. And, and unlike my peers who bounced from project to project, I was on the New York City Transit Authority job for three years. Wow. Was I was time. on a long yeah. time. And I, I supervised people. I, you know, I managed teams. So I had a great experience. But the highlight there was when I got to the end of my third year, the client actually kicked Arthur Anderson out. And it did so by hiring four of us to take over the application, myself included. So I actually left the firm. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. You yeah. defected to a client? I defected to a client. Now, that is a mortal injury. To, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I didn't know this about you. So how did yeah. you manage to worm your way back in? So this is uh, interesting. I, Of course, uh, like I said, I was working for Steve Smith, so... The first year, it was great. I mean, I earned a lot. In fact, I went to Steve Smith for advice on whether to leave. And Steve actually said to me, he probably would deny this. Steve was either a partner or close to being a partner. And he said, well, listen, if you're going to turn this down, I'm taking it. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> so, um, that's how much money they were offering us. But I took the job. I worked for a year under that contract. And then the, uh, the Transit Authority ended that contract. And uh, offered me the position of director of technical services. So I was the director of technical services for the New York City Transit Authority for about a year and a half under Mayor Koch of all. Wow. Wow. Okay. And then one day I was riding home, reading the newspaper, and um, the mayor was disrespecting my entire unit in the paper. And, you know, I told Peg I was quitting. I said, I just... I'm just not up for being, you know, in the newspaper. Wow. Were you, was so, your name mentioned? It wasn't directly, but it, it was just 
the abuse we were taking oh. for outages uh, on the trains just wasn't called for. It wasn't wasn't really our fault. So anyway, I decided to quit, started looking for another job, and I was close to landing one. And I bumped into Steve Smith in Midtown Manhattan. I mean, bumped into him on a street corner. Thousands of people. And he says, not right now. Yeah. And he says to me, Steve, what are you doing? I said, I'm changing jobs. And he said, listen, I tell you what, turn down that job you're going to get. Interview with us. And if we don't hire you, I will offer, I will help you find a job better than the one you're going to turn down. Ah, that was really nice of him. And I said, deal. And I was interviewed and uh, accepted accepted a position back with Arthur Anderson. Oh, I, I had no idea you had your little detour. I immediately was assigned to uh, AT&T. Oh my gosh. And that's how you got going in the communication industry group. Exactly. I want to transition a little bit to Peg, you're in Peg and, and, and your legacy of giving, because throughout your career, you're, you are giving time and money to organizations that you and Peg support. And in spite of a career that's really taking off, you've managed to make time for this. And I think many of the folks who listen to this know that when you worked in the 80s and the 90s, it was a basically a 12-hour day, right? It was just all out. There was no breaks, yet you managed to figure out a way to be involved. So tell me a little bit about that and, and how you and Peg made that happen and maybe use Covenant House as an example. Yeah. Well, thanks, Liz. Um, and, and thanks for, for even asking about this because part it's it's about how both Peg and I were uh raised and exposed as uh, you know growing up Peg has a, a legacy with her family primarily through her dad uh, you know it's it's her parents but her dad was a dedicated public servant i mean he had his own law practice but you know he was dedicated to to the community and served as mayor although he had his own practice you know served as mayor and did a lot of great things. But for me, it was my mom. And, you know, we lived, I had great fortune of living in an extended family. So it's not just my mom and dad and the six kids. It was, you know, we lived with great uncles and great aunts and grandparents. And so there were 13, 14 of us in the house at any one time. And, you know, my mother once said to me, you know, Steve, it's not about paying the bills. It's about which bill to pay. So, you know, uh, we always considered ourselves a middle-class family, but it wasn't like there were extras. And yet, despite this, uh, my mother, and maybe it was the era, right? But my mother always felt that there was another place at the table. You could always help somebody. There was always somebody you could invite to dinner or whatever. And so I, I think that set the tone for much of sort of my life and I think Peg's as well. You said to me when we were prepping for this that at one point you came home from college and had to introduce yourself. Uh, One Christmas I came home at dinner, at our Christmas dinner, I had to introduce myself to the people sitting around me. So it's not just, 
It's yeah. not just the 13 of us in the house there. Understand now there are others there in the, in the room, you know, other visitors, other relatives. But the people sitting immediately around me are people I don't know. And so I asked my mother, you know, who are these people? <laughs> and she said, oh, well, you know, I met them at the laundromat or I met them at the grocery store and they seemed lonely. Oh. So I invited them to dinner. And, but not just that, we would, we would then retire to the family room where everybody would be exchanging a gift. And sure enough, my mother bought gifts for these people. I mean, you know, a bottle of perfume or, uh, you know, whatever. And, right. But just something. Just yeah. Want them to be forgotten. All right. Tell us about Covenant House. So Covenant House is an organization that deals with homeless youth ages 18 to 25. It has multiple programs, but largely is trying to transition youth from the streets to a, a stable life. So it could be anything from just giving them a place to live so they can work and go to school, or it could in fact include you know, their own program for education, let's say if someone doesn't have the high school equivalent. So it's really a uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, organization. We've supported them for, you know, gosh, 40 years or more. That is so great. And so throughout your, your careers advancing, you're doing well. You moved to California. You're making more and more money. You talk about the December 28th checks and wine. <laughs> yeah. So, at, well, it's at some point along the line there, I think we're still in New Jersey. Peg and I decided that, hey, listen, you know, we should be, you know, sort of setting, you know, this typical eccentric guy, we ought to be setting targets for how much we're giving away. (laughs) Some Um, key performance indicators. A key performance indicator. And so we decided to tithe, which is 10% of your gross uh, income. And so we decided to do that. And it evolved into this write checks and drink wine. So on somewhere in the last week of Christmas, but enough that we could write the checks, get them in the mail out the door. Uh, So December 28th is sort of a a good target. We would sit down with a list of all the charities that had written us, a list of all the charities we had given, a list of all the charities we'd already given to, a calculation of how much money we had made during the year, and we wrote checks until we hit that amount. Wow. And usually we had a bottle of wine sitting at the table, (laughs) and we would just drink until that happened. Did that mean that the people that were down on the priority list but had the benefit of three glasses of wine got a little bit more? (laughs) (laughs) Well, at some point during... At some point during that conversation, it did become, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah we'll sure. probably make more next year. When I was working with you, we were doing a lot of traveling to Texas for a client down there. You had the largest account at Accenture. You had a multi-hundred million dollar target on your head. We had, I mean, it was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of difficult situations with the clients sometimes and trying to hit your numbers. And it was a very tough job that you ran. You did a great job running it, but you still throughout that continued your involvement with 
both youth sports and charities. How did you make that work with all of that pressure, teenage kids, et cetera? Well, on the kids' side, a lot of red eyes. (laughs) Golly, Um, yeah. You know, I'd say a lot of red eyes, really great coordination between Peg and Linda Meyer, my executive assistant. (laughs) Okay, I remember Um, her too. Um, Linda would put personal uh, events on my calendar, and she knew to arrange my travel around them. It was just, you know, just something that you you just had to do. I I don't think our I don't think our boys think I I missed think I missed any of them. And, you know, I, ultimately, Liz, I think what was important was that the family understood they were first. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's really what that the most important thing was they understood they were first. After you retire, you start a family foundation. So tell us about that. Well, you know, we get to the uh, end of the Accenture career and it was really, quite honestly, I I loved working there. And Mm -hmm. um, I realized Accenture was really going to be happy to have me continue to do what I was doing for as long as I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had just reached the point where I was either going to do something more and different, either in the firm or outside the firm. And it seemed like doing something outside the firm seemed the the better path. So I retired and uh, spent probably six months or so really thinking about what was next and really started to dive into uh, sort of my main three charities, but in addition, had given long, hard thought to starting this foundation, family foundation which was based on this notion that Peg and I were going to give the money away anyway. So why not set up a foundation and then sort of be more intentional, that's the right word, Mm -hmm. about giving it away. And with the added bonus of uh, being able to include our our boys in in, in the actual giving, make them directors, and then include them in all the decisions about who gets what, uh, how the foundations run, you know, et cetera. So it was, that's really what, what the whole thinking was that I, you know, I had my, my next piece in front of me. I had my activities, but this seemed like a great family activity. And how long have you been doing it? So 12, maybe 12 years now. Wow. And how's it worked out? I mean, how, what have you seen with your boys? I think this is a very cool idea that until I met you, I'd never heard. I mean, no contemporary of mine, I should say, had ever done something like this. Well, I think the results so far are, uh, are good, given where we are and given where the boys are in their lives. First of all, the boys are uh, much better organized than I am. Um, <laughs> That's saying something. Okay. Well, well, it, you know, I, I still think that I would have transitioned into a foundation that was going to write checks and drink wine on the December 28th. Okay. The boys are, we, we have a website, we have a mission statement. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, we, we literally sit down, I guess, at least twice, often three times a year and review who has asked money from us, we d- divvy up to-dos about who's going to track down the, the nonprofit, talk to them, evaluate them, 
come back to the group as to whether the cause is in line with our mission, you know, worthy uh, of someone we want to support. They've put limits. The boys have put limits on how much money we give to an organization the first year, you know, until we're certain that they're going to be spending their money. Correct. I mean, they're, they're very disciplined. Mm-hmm. So it's worked out well. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess I couldn't have hoped for more at this point. And, and they're engaged in, in giving. They're, oh, she's um, great. Each boy, each young man <laughs> at this point. Right. Joe, his interests are environmental. So he's looking for sustainability of solutions related to solar energy and water safety. Dan and his wife are interested in women who have been abused through their, you know, in their relationships with men. Tom and his significant other are very interested in food security. So very different. They're, They're different kids. And to try to bring that all together into a theme is, uh, is, is interesting. And they've been able to figure that out among them. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, it's super cool. So after you retire, you also somewhere along the way meet the Bishop of the Archdiocese of Oakland. How did, how does that happen? Well, um, one of the, my activities, you know, had been that I was on the board of uh, Catholic charities mm-hmm. and, um, we ended up losing our CEO. And so I served on a volunteer basis as the CEO for about nine months while we did a search. You know, so I met the new bishop. He had actually mm-hmm. was appointed while I was there. When I got done with that activity, he basically said, hey, I, I've got an idea that uh, needs someone to lead it. Would you be interested in perhaps taking this on? And and I said, sure, you know, what is it? He said, well, I'd like to, I'd like to, I've got a high school in Oakland that's struggling a bit financially, and I want to replace it with a work-study high school. It's called Cristo Ray. You mm-hmm. may have heard of it, Liz. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They have one, actually. The second one was in Portland. I think there's one in Chicago, too, that sometimes oh, there's the, actually supported. The yeah. one was in Chicago. They have two yeah. in Chicago now. But uh, I want to start a Cristo Ray school in Oakland. Would you take on that task? And uh, I said, sure. So for about two and a half years, I headed up committee that raised money, found jobs, found a site for the school, figured out the demographics of where kids who are underserved lived and where they would be living 10 years from now, how transportation would work. I had a great committee that worked with me. You know, it was quite an experience. So that school is up. It's going to be, it's in its third year now. Interesting to run a work-study school with in the era of COVID, by the mm-hmm. way. Um, yeah. Probably a little harder to do the work part of it, right? Yeah, a little harder to do that. Right. Um, and then, um, so, uh, you know, when that, when that sort of got done, I, I, you know, I called him up. I said, hey, we got approval to start the school. There's a headquarters. So we, we had to have their approval. We got their approval. And I, I called him up and he said, well, why don't you come to the office? I have something else. I said, sure. I was on vacation at the time. 
And uh, when I got back, he we started talking about how to reorganize the chancery mm-hmm. and uh, what would be the best reorganization model. And when that was done, he said, well, geez, he looked at the org chart and he said, well, why don't you take that role? Oh, wow. <laughs> Is this, you've whiteboarded it as a typical consultant. You've probably done a yeah. two by two yeah. matrix on pros and cons. Uh, and so he says he was he absolutely knew what he was doing, getting you in there, right? I think he knew what he was doing. <laughs> that you would design your own job. So you're the most senior non-church person at the archdiocese. Is that correct? Well, um, yes, although the, there's a CFO who has, so think of a sort of a typical CFO. He has, you know, finance, he has real estate. Mm-hmm. He actually has anything related to assets. So he and I are on the, sort of that that inner circle. But um, I'm the first non-religious to hold this role in Oakland. What do you do as that job? What's the remit? Uh, well, uh, my major responsibilities, uh, you know, are all over the board. Um, if you take finance out and the stuff I've talked about and you take out anything that relates to priests, it would be fair to say I have everything else. So I have communications. I have faith formation from a headquarters standpoint. I, I'm the one who signs off and keeps all the records about uh, priest assignments and outside priests coming and going. I have all the sex abuse issues. They all belong to me, current, historic as well as current. You know, I do special stuff like uh, we, we just started a racial justice task mm-hmm. force. So that belongs to me. You know, so I've, I've, I've kind of got sort of that everything else all communicate. So when I say communications, I have the, the print media. I have all social media. I have the website. So all of that. So it's it's kind of a hodgepodge of all things that other people don't have. Well, as we talked here, you've had such a great long history of fundraising and being involved. What's the difference between doing that, uh, even not just giving the money, but you've also been involved and actually being a sort of a member a staff member, if you will, of a non-for-profit, which in this case happens to be the Catholic Church? Uh, well, I, you know, when I was with Accenture, and, and you know, you, I think you started out this way, you know, compassionate art as, you know, I think all of us have been in that position in business where you'd, you'd like to be the benevolent dictator. But ultimately, you make decisions and you can tell people, listen, I've heard all of the opinions. This is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember you saying that multiple times to me. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, you know, no such things in nonprofits. The dynamic in a nonprofit is that everyone thinks they run the place. Everyone needs to be on board. Everybody needs to buy in. And therefore, the, 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 the more that you would just say, I'm sorry, this is the way we're doing it, the more resistant the organization becomes to the idea of doing it, whatever it is, whether it's the best idea or the worst idea. You spend much more time in that, I'm going to say that influence, getting people 
up and down the organization, you know, agreeing to agreeing to what what you'd like to do and the vision and, and the direction. Do you feel like you have an equal voice from an authority perspective as a non-religious person in the organization? You know, in in many matters, I'd say yes, but not all. I mean, the fact I don't wear a collar mm-hmm. matters. It does matter occasionally. Okay. You know, uh, for example, priest assignments. No one asks me. <laughs> oh, they they make them. Yeah, they're made okay. by the bishop and his yeah. priest advisors. I'm not asked, but on the other hand. I would say on most matters, uh, you know, I'm consulted by the bishop, you know, for my opinion. Um, He checks around with, you know, probably four four people on most everything. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of those on almost everything. Okay. So if, if I'm listening to this and I'm thinking that my third act might be doing something with my church more in that direction, uh, regardless of what religion it is. What what advice might you give as you think about our listeners all being, you know, high-charging business people and then transitioning into a role like that, even in such a senior leadership position? You know, despite uh, maybe how my story unfolds, I, I'd say, you know, start getting involved at some level as soon as possible to feel it out, right? Mm-hmm. To feel it out. I mean, ultimately, you don't agree to do this unless you're comfortable that you can work with the people, you know, that you enjoy, you know, the environment. I mean, at least in in the current state of the Catholic Church. All right. Well, I always ask my guests at the end, what aren't you done with yet? You know, I think that there are, um, I'd sort of look out, uh, again, I'm three years into this gig. I, I, I think that I'm far from done. It's really about what what do I want to tackle next, whether it's the work on, we didn't even talk about Red Cloud today, the work with the Native Americans that I've loved so much. Peg and I have been involved in for, gosh, 20 years. Covenant House, uh, again, mm-hmm. the homelessness of youth, uh, getting them off the streets. So, but, but I'm going to say, to answer your question, narrow our focus a bit focus on particular uh, social issues and, and try to try to make an impact. I think that's what's next. That will be your fourth, fifth, sixth act. So we'll come back. You can come back on the show in another well, thank season. You. So thank you. Steve, it's been great talking. Where can our listeners find you at online? Online, online. They could, uh, they could just uh, write me emails. I'm, I'm open to those anytime. We'll put those uh, in the show notes then. And uh, in the show notes. that great. would be great. I'm I'm happy to chat uh, too. So if you want to include my cell phone, just give me a shout. If you're in the Bay Area, under normal circumstances, I'm good for a beer or a coffee <laughs> anytime. Great. Well, thanks so much, Steve, and uh, good luck with your work. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.